0: Good evening, and welcome to mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, January 12th, 2023. I am thrilled to be with you tonight, that we have the chance to study together, and I am grateful to every one of you for giving this time so that we can be together and study Torah together. The Eileh Shamos B'nei Yisrael, these are the names of the children of Israel, Habayim Mitzrayimah, who came to Egypt. Yaakov and his household came down to Egypt. Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, Judah, Yisachar, Zvulun, Dan, Dam, Naphtali, Gad, V'asher, and Yosef was already there. But we just had this list of names. In two weeks ago, Parshas Vayigash, the Torah told us the names of the sons of Yaakov. And it's the same names. Doesn't change. Why does the Torah repeat itself at the beginning of Shemos, the beginning of the first book of the Torah, when we just had this list of names? Rashi gives a famous answer to this question. We discussed that earlier this week. But I'd like to share with you a new answer from Rabbi Tzvi Sapolovsky there were 210 years between the two lists of names. The list of names in Vayigash was followed 210 years later by the beginning of Shamos. And that was 210 years of a dual threat to the existence of the Jewish people. 210 years of slavery and affliction to their physical well-being, and during that same period of time, exposure to an alien culture steeped in idolatry and immorality. And after 210 years surrounded by that atmosphere and that society, somehow At the end of that period, the Jewish people were able to come out of Egypt and immediately go to Mount Sinai to receive the Torah directly from God. How were they able to hold on to their spiritual integrity with all that they went through during this period of travail in Egypt? What was the secret to being able to hold on this spiritual survival of our ancestors? How did they do it? And... More practically, what lesson can we derive for how do we do that? How can we live and sustain the onslaught of the wider society and its vastly different values? Because, let's be honest, this question is more critical today than perhaps ever before as more Jews are, sadly, unable to resist the temptations of the wider secular culture. How do we hold on? Our sages tell us that the Jewish people maintained their distinction in Egypt by several ways, including they did not change their names. Es shmom. They did not change their names. They retained Hebrew names for themselves. This was, in fact, the first condition for Yaakov to be willing to come down to Egypt because he understood that for his family to come down to Egypt en masse meant that they would all be subjected to this alien culture, this spiritual immorality and idolatry. And so Yaakov, as a condition for coming down to Egypt, insisted that every member of his family retain their Hebrew names. And that's the reason the Torah gives us the list of names when Yaakov was about to move down to Egypt in the Parsh of Ayyigash. And then 210 years later, the same list of names is repeated in order to highlight that it was through keeping, maintaining their distinctiveness through, among other ways, their retaining their Hebrew names, that is what allowed, made possible, the Jewish people to remain a great nation in a qualitative sense by remaining distinct from those around them. Now, this is not a halakha. It is not a requirement of Jewish law that a person has a Hebrew name. At other times, with other means of distinctiveness, having a Hebrew name is not a requirement. It's not necessary. And in fact, widely not practiced. For example, during the time of the Talmud, 1,500, 2,000 years ago, Many of the scholars who were among our greatest scholars and leaders had names that were non-Jewish names. Papa, Abaye, many, many examples. Mordechai, from the Purim story. Mordechai. The word Mordechai is not a Jewish name. It's not a Hebrew name. It's it, 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 it's 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 shocking when you know it actually comes from the word Marduk. Marduk was an idol. It's like, for example, can you imagine? I happen to know a couple of Jewish people whose name is Chris. Okay, there's nothing wrong, you know. It's not, I mean, it's a little, but can you imagine if the greatest leader of the Jewish people, Rav Moshe Feinstein, can you imagine if his name was really Chris Feinstein? You can't imagine such a thing. Mordechai, Marduch. Today there are even rabbis named Michael. But the value is necessary. However, it is expressed. There are many ways to remain distinct, and different places and different times call for different manners, but the value is the same. The story of the Jews in Egypt starts with and is made possible by these opening words, the Elesh Shamos B'nei Yisrael, these are the names. It's because these are the names that are the same that we read in Beratius, that is what allowed the Jewish people to be able to emerge and receive the Torah from Mount Sinai. I want to share with you an amazing story I just heard. The story is told by Rabbi Jonathan Morgenstern who is the rabbi of young Israel of Scarsdale in New York. He is a colleague of mine and a friend of mine. He's a wonderful person, a great rabbi. And he told the following story. He did not grow up in a fully observant home. And he said, on my bar mitzvah, I made a promise to myself I would only eat food that had a kosher symbol on it. Where he lived at that time, it was not so easy to be able to find kosher products at that time, but he made a promise, and he was strict in adhering to that promise. Once it happened, he went to New York, and he went to a basketball game between two large Jewish high schools. And he's sitting in the basketball game, watching the game, and there's a girl sitting next to him. And the girl sitting next to him offered him some chewing gum. So he says to her, could I please see the package? Kind of a strange thing to say. She handed it to him, and he's looking at it. He's looking for a kosher symbol. He turns it over. He looks carefully, this side and that side, and he doesn't see a kosher symbol on the the gum. And he hands it back to her. He says, no, thank you. She says to him, what's wrong? Why don't you want my gum? You asked for it. And he said, well, I try not to eat any food that does not have a kosher symbol. And she didn't exactly understand what he was saying, but she was curious and she asked him questions. And he said, that girl that I sat next to, her name is Jordana. This is my wife. And they are now parents and grandparents of a beautiful Jewish family. And he added the following about this story. He said, This story is not about the gum, but about what it represents. We are now reading in the Torah about the nation of Israel and Egypt and about the challenge of retaining their identity within a foreign culture. Ultimately, this is the challenge that all of us face. To what extent are we swept up by the values and practices of the world around us? And how do we stay true to the values and practices that make us distinct. Yes, he said, I did lose the chance to chew gum that day, but I found my better half in the process. So the next piece I want to share with you on the surface might seem to contradict what I just said. But in fact, it does not. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs directs our attention to a very special woman in this week's Torah portion of Shemos. She is one of the most unexpected heroes of the entire Torah. Without her, Moshe probably would not have lived. The story of the exodus from Egypt would have been completely different and yet she was not a Jewish woman. She had nothing to gain by what she did, and in fact, she had everything to lose. While it was Paro who afflicted the Jewish people in Egypt, it was a member of his own family, his daughter, who saved them, Paro's daughter. Let's remember the story. Paro had decreed death for every Jewish boy that was born. Yocheved married to Amram. They had a baby boy. For three months, they were able to conceal his existence. But after that, they were worried they would be found and God forbid, their baby boy would be killed. So she took her baby Put him in a basket, allowed it to float down the Nile river, and the baby's sister, Miriam, was watching to see what would happen, hoping that somehow this baby would survive. the daughter of Paro, came to bathe in the waters of the Nile River. Venaro And her maidservants came with her. Hateva She saw the basket caught up in the reeds along the side of the river. And she sent out her maidservant to bring this basket to her. She was curious of what it was. She saw inside the basket was a baby. Vihine And the baby was crying. And she had compassion for the baby. She had pity for the baby. Batera and she said, Miyalde Ho this is a baby born to the Jewish people. Now, please note the sequence of this narrative. First, she sees the child and she has pity on it. And that's a natural, human, compassionate response. But only then does it dawn on her who this child must be. Who else would abandon a child like this and put it in a basket? And she remembers her father's decree against the Jews that every baby boy should be killed. And all of a sudden, in one moment, the whole situation changes. Because now, to save this baby, to act on her initial natural reaction of compassion and pity, to act on that would be to disobey the king, the paro. And it's not like anybody else. It was his own daughter. It's unimaginable what would happen to her if it was found out what she was doing. And keep in mind she was not alone. She had her maidservants with her. She understood that she faced the risk that somebody would say something, somebody might gossip. Yet she does not desist. She has the courage of her compassion. Then comes the next surprise. So Miriam was there watching and Miriam approached the daughter of Paro and said, well, we could arrange for someone to um, raise the child, to, to, to nurture the child while it's a baby we could arrange for like a, a wet nurse to to help with the child. And that's what happens. And it turns out that it was actually Yocheved, actually the baby's mother herself. <speaking in Hebrew> the boy grew up, Paro, <speaking in Hebrew> and he was brought to the daughter of Paro. Leben, <speaking in Hebrew> and he came he became for her her son she adopted him as her son. Vatikru Shmo Moshe. And she called his name Moshe, Vatomer, because she said, Ki mishi mishisihu, from the water I drew him. In other words, Paro's daughter did not just have a moment of compassion seeing a baby that was vulnerable, She didn't forget the child and remains committed to the child's welfare and she adopts the riskiest strategy of all. She's going to adopt this child and bring it up as her own son. That means everyone's going to know. An amazing act of courage. But the most surprising detail is the one that is at the end because in the Torah itself it is the parents that give a name to the child and sometimes in the book of Bereshit it's God himself who gives a name to a baby. How strange is it that the hero of the entire Torah, the greatest of all prophets, the one who led the Jews out of Egypt and who brought and gave and taught the Torah to the Jewish people for all time does not bear the name that his own parents gave him. Whatever name it was that Amram and Yocheve, when he was born, he must have been given a name. They called him some name in that short amount of time until they had to put him in the basket. But the only name that is used is the name that was given to him by his adoptive mother, an Egyptian princess. Our rabbis in the Midrash call attention to this. Listen to what they say. This is the reward for those who do kindness. She did not only kindness, but courageous kindness to be willing to to, to violate her father's own decree, Paro's decree, Our rabbis say, although Moshe had many names and he certainly had another name that his own parents had given him at birth, the only one by which he is known in the whole Torah is the one given to him by the daughter of Paro. Even God did not call him by any other name. Okay, it's incredible. So who was Paro's daughter? What was her name? Well, we don't know, because her name is not mentioned anywhere in the Torah. In Divrei Hayamim, the book of Chronicles, that was written many more than a thousand years later, we are told that there was a daughter of Paro whose name was Batya. So we understand that her name was Batia, even though that name is not mentioned anywhere in the Torah itself, only later. Batya means daughter of God. Listen to what our rabbis tell us about the important the critical lesson that we learn from her name Batya. Listen to this. Our rabbis tell us the holy one blessed be he said to her to Basparo the daughter of Paro, Moshe was not your son yet you called him your son. You are not my daughter, but I will call you my daughter, Batya. You will be my daughter. Rabbi Sachs concludes, tyranny cannot destroy humanity. Moral courage can sometimes be found in the heart of darkness. And that's why we must never use stereotypes. We must never generalize. Even among the Egyptians, they were not all evil. Even from Paro himself, there was a heroine who must be praised. We must recognize virtue wherever we find it, even among our enemies. And the lesson that we learn is that the core of human values, humanity, compassion, and courage is truly universal. The subject of names is central to our Torah portion, Shamos. The word Shamos means names. Shouldn't be surprising. Let's look at another critical part of the narrative. So Paro is going to decree that Nebuchadnezzar forbid, every Jewish baby boy on birth should be killed. In order to implement that, he needs the assistance, the cooperation of Jewish midwives because they're the ones that are on the scene. So, Vayomer Melech Mitzrayim, Lemial Paro Called out to the Jewish midwives, Asher Shem Shifra. The name of one of them was Shifra. V'Shem is Pua. The second one was Ain Pua. And he said, When you help a Jewish woman give birth, and if you see that the baby is a boy, you should toss the baby into the river, God forbid, and kill it, God forbid. but these midwives, they revered God and God's values, and they did not do what Paro said. They resisted Paro's direct order, which, of course, put their own lives in peril. Vayitev Elohim Lam and God was grateful to these midwives for risking their lives to try to save Jewish babies. And God rewarded them. Vayirev ha'am, Vayatzmu ma'od, and the Jewish people became many, 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 very numerous and mighty and because these midwives revered God, God made for them houses. Let's go in order. The first point is, our sages tell us that Shifra and Puah were not their names. Shifra was actually Yocheved, the mother of Moshe, Pua was actually Miriam, the sister of Moshe. So, if their names were Yocheved and Miriam, why does the Torah call them here Shifra and Pua? Rashi gives us a famous answer. Shifra, the, the etymology of that Hebrew word, is related to the verb shemeshaferes esavlad, one who beautifies, who takes care of the baby as the baby is born, makes sure that the limbs are straight, that the that the baby looks healthy, that the head of the baby is is is, is healthy and, and 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 doing well. So she was called Shifra because of the way that she was Meshapere. She assisted and took care of this baby as it was born. Pua, alshem she pua umadaberes She was called Pua because she would make noises like uh, cooing and singing and. Various kinds of noises and sounds. Hanashim Shemafaisos the way that a woman would comfort a child who is crying. You have a baby who's crying, so you you sing to the baby, you make noises, you hum to the baby. Yeah, that's that's what pu'a means. That's why she's called pu'a. Allow me to share with you briefly four lessons that we derive. From these names. Number one, tragically, many of these babies were killed by Pyro, though Shifra and Pua saved as many of them as they could. But even for those babies who would only live a few moments, God forbid, they cared for those babies as if it had its entire life ahead. They made sure the baby was healthy. They made sure that the baby was comforted. What does it matter if, Nebuchadnezzar, God forbid, the baby's life is about to be taken? We see from this a cornerstone of Jewish medical ethics. And that is that every moment of life has infinite value. Even if a person will, God forbid, pass away now, each second that remains is precious and valuable and must be protected. Even a person who is, God forbid, a goses, a goses means a person who is on the verge of death. All mitzvos are set aside in order to save them, even if it's only to add a few seconds to their life. And this has profound, practical applications in the most weighty situations of trauma and end-of-life care. This is a fundamental principle of Jewish medical ethics that we derive from the way that Shifra and Puah cared for these babies who only perhaps had seconds to live. That's number one. Number two. Allow me to start with a story that, <coughs> excuse me, that I heard from Rabbi Melech Biederman. There was a man, his name was Mordechai Weinberger. He passed away a few years ago. Weinberger was not his real name. His real name was Mordechai Greenfeld. After World War II, he had survived the Holocaust. He was in a DP camp. He was a young man, obviously, and everyone in the camp was trying to get a visa to be able to emigrate to a safe country. He had a very close friend whose name was Engel. Now, to get a visa required that you'd take a medical exam. Engel, this man Engel, when he did the medical exam, it was found that he had typhus, a very serious and long-lasting illness. Of course, he was denied a visa. Greenfeld got a visa. So Engel went to visit Greenfeld just before Greenfeld was about to leave with his visa. And Engel was crying bitterly. He couldn't leave. Even if he survived typhus, there is no country in the world that would accept him with that kind of medical background. He had no future. He had no hope. Greenfeld took his visa and he said to Engel, your name is now Greenfeld. Take this visa and go. the real Greenfeld stayed in the DP camp and he was there for a long time. It took a long time for him to eventually somehow get somebody else's visa and that person's visa name was Weinberger. And so finally, after a long time, he emigrated to Canada and he went to Toronto as Mordechai Weinberger. In Toronto, he raised a beautiful Jewish family. He was successful in business. And many years later, he went to his rabbi and he said, Weinberger is not my real name. Maybe I should change it back to Greenfeld, because that's my real name. The rabbi said to him, do not change your name. Definitely not. Because whenever someone calls you Weinberger by your name, there is a celebration in heaven over the greatness of a person in what he did for another, the self-sacrifice to give away his own visa, not knowing if he would ever be able to emigrate. The rabbi said to him, you don't want to give up that cause for heavenly celebration. And he remained Mordechai Weinberger for the rest of his life. Our real identity, who we are, is what we do for other people. The midwives remained Shifra and Puah because their names attest to their sacrifice to help those babies even though they put themselves in danger. Third lesson from these names of Shifra and Puah. And this is a lesson that comes from Moshe Shimon Ofen in Israel. Shifra, because she beautified the baby, Pua because she comforted the baby from crying, she smiled, she sang to the baby. In other words, he writes, They were not just midwives. They were also comforting, smiling, embracing caregivers who knew how to talk to and calm a baby. In the midst of horrific enslavement and a crisis and trauma of slavery and persecution, warm and reassuring women suddenly appeared who not only facilitated the birth process, but caressed and sang songs and comforted these newborn babies. They were great women not only because they refused to carry out the horrific instructions of Paro, but because they added a smile and a gentle word amidst the horror of Egyptian slavery. And here's the lesson. Life is not only about what we do, but how we do it. It's possible to to do what's right in a frenzied and unpleasant manner, but in contrast to that, Shifra and Pua should inspire us, whether we're at home, whether we're at work, whether we're traveling, wherever we are, to add gentleness and smiles to whatever we do and to adopt this embracing attitude because the way we do something is incredibly important to how we do it. Finally, lesson number four from these names of Shifra and Pua. So, God is extremely praiseworthy of these two women. And the Torah says as follows, I'll repeat the, 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 these p'sukim. God wanted to reward these midwives. The nation grew and became very mighty. And seeing that these women revered God and God's values in their courage and their compassion, batim. God made for them houses. What does it mean? God made for them houses. So, clearly what the Torah is telling us is that God, in recognition of their courage and their sacrifice and their compassion, rewarded them. What was the reward? Rashi says, famously, V'yas lehem batim, God made for them houses. It refers to the house of the priesthood and the house of royalty. There were priests and Levites and kings who came from the babies that, that, uh, that they themselves had. Yocheved gave birth to Moshe, who was Levite, To Aaron, who was a Kohen, a priest, Miriam, among her descendants were kings of the Jewish people. That's the reward that God gave to the two of them for their courage and their sacrifice. That answer is a little bit problematic in the way the verses unfold. Let's follow it one more time. God wants to... Reward the midwives. Now this appears according to Rashi. This is like an interjection. These words, this is like in the middle of God wanting to reward the 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 midwives. We interject a historical comment, a historical note that in fact the Jewish people became very numerous. Then we return to vayas lehem batim, God made for them houses. According to Rashi, that was the reward. But it's strange that that the, the, the Torah would say, God wants to reward them, and instead of saying what the reward is, it would interject some other comment, and only then, at the end, say, and here's the reward, they have houses. So, Rabbi Mordechai Kamenetsky has a different answer, a different approach. And it goes like this. And it comes from a story. Rabbi Kamenetsky knew a, a couple who had a baby that was premature, significantly premature. And this baby received care in the NICU, in the neonatal intensive care, for about two months. And I don't know if you have this experience. I, I do have this experience. It's around the clock 24-7 and and every moment is a crisis and and these doctors and and nurses literally are keeping their baby alive and the parents are there 24-7 as well and they develop this relationship and this feeling and this closeness to these people who literally are saving their baby every single moment. And finally it happened at the end of two months that they were ready to go home and they took the baby home. The baby was well enough by then to go home. The parents had tremendous, tremendous, deep gratitude to these doctors and nurses, and they wanted to buy something. They wanted to buy a gift to show their gratitude. They thought to themselves, "Should sugar flowers, a box of chocolate, but they felt something really, really deep and they wanted to get something significant that would be meaningful to these amazing professionals who gave so much and literally gave life to their child. So they went to their rabbi, Rav El who was a great teacher and scholar in Philadelphia, and they said to him, what do you think we should do? What should we buy for these doctors and nurses to express our gratitude? Rav El-Yishve said to them, here's what you should do. On the child's birthday, go back to the hospital with the baby and show the doctors and the nurses Zeh ha-katan gadol ye ye. that's the phrase that we say at a bris. This is the little one that will become big. Bring the baby back one year old and say, this is the baby that you helped save. Look at how the baby is growing, how the baby is doing so well. To be able to say to someone, look at what you did to save this life, there is no greater reward than that. You cannot do anything greater that will show your gratitude. And Rav Kamenetsky uses that, that story to answer this question God rewarded the midwives. What was the reward? The reward is right away the Jewish people became numerous and mighty. They became strong. The Jewish people emerged. From where? They emerged from the babies that these two women saved. Seeing a mighty and numerous nation as a result of their effort to save babies, as a result of their willingness to risk their lives, to to violate Paro's command, to see the effect That was the greatest reward possible for Shifra and Pua. Allow me to share one last piece with you. Judaism has beliefs that are quite difficult, difficult to understand. They're abstract. And we need a way to handle them. If I were to ask you this question, we say the Shmon Esrei, the Amidah, the standing prayer. We say it every day, three times a day. If I were to ask you, what is the most important paragraph in the Amidah prayer? If you were to ask me that question, I might say, there's a paragraph, Shema we say to God, hear our cries, hear our voices, hear our prayers. What could be more important than that? Or maybe, I would say, on Shabbos, it's the middle paragraph that expresses the Kedush HaSayom, the sanctity of this day, that ends with the words, Blessed are you God, Hamakadesh Shosh You sanctify Shabbos. What could be more important than that? But Jewish law understands it differently. The halacha is different. This is actually a rule in Shulchan Aruch, code of Jewish law. I'm a spallel, one who prays, it says the Yomim Tovim. You have to understand the meaning of all the words because what's the point of praying if you don't even know what it is that you're saying? I mean, how can it have meaning if I were to if I were to read a book in uh, some other language that I did not understand and I read it to you? Uh, I mean. Maybe you would understand the words that I'm saying if you know that language, but you certainly can't take it as any kind of meaningful communication that I'm addressing to you because I don't even know what I'm saying. You have to know at least what it means. But that's hard. You know, it's a long prayer. But if you're not able to do that, to know and understand the meaning of all the words of the entire prayer, lefachos, at least, at the bare minimum, You have to at least know the meaning of the first paragraph. And if you don't know vim if you don't know the, the the meaning of the words in the first paragraph of Shema, of the Shemon Esrei, yaxer Paul, you didn't pray. You didn't fulfill your obligation. You, you still have not prayed the most important paragraph of the Shema Nesrei is the first paragraph. Why? Why should that be? In our Torah portion, Shemos, we have a long passage where God appears to Moshe at the burning bush and God wants Moshe to go back to Egypt to lead the Jewish people out of Egypt. We discussed that narrative and its questions and its complexity a while ago. <speaking in Hebrew> God, Moshe says to God, <speaking in Hebrew> If I follow what you say, I'm going to come back to the Jewish people. I'm going to say to them, The God of your forefathers has sent me to you to take us all out of Egypt. It's time for us to leave. For Amruli, they're going to say to me, What's, what's his name, this God? You tell, you're tell you telling us the God of our ancestors. What's his name? So Moshe says to God, What should I answer? What's the answer to that question? What's his name? Now listen carefully. God says to Moshe, Asher Eheya. I will be what I will be. Okay. And God continues and says. This is what you should tell the children of Israel when they ask you, what is God's name? I will be the one who is sending for you. And God further said to Moshe, This is what you should say to the children of Israel. Hashem Elokei Echem, the God of your forefathers, Elokei Avraham, the God of Avraham, Elokei Yitzchak, the God of Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov, and the God of Yaakov, Shulachani Alechem, that's the God that sent me to you to say, it's time for us to leave Egypt. It's a bizarre passage. Moshe asked God, if they asked me, what is your name? What should I say to them? And God gives Moshe three different answers. First, he answers Moshe and says, here is, here is the, the answer to your question, what is my name? Eheyeh asher Ehyeh. I will be what I will be. Then God says, and here's what you should say to the Jewish people. Ehyeh asher shalachani alechem, I will be the one who is sending for you. And then God says a second answer to tell the Jewish people, I am the God of Avraham and Yitzchak and Yaakov. What's going on? Why are there three answers? Why are there three answers? And what do the answers mean? What do those names mean? Sam Sofer, one of the great scholars and sages and teachers of the early 1800s, explains. How is it possible to know anything about God? The Malbim writes, based on the writing of the Rambam, Maimonides, you want to know what God is? God is Hanimsa asher mitzi'uso tolui ba'atzmuso The what God is, listen carefully, because now you'll get it. God is the one whose existence is dependent on his essence and not on another what does that mean i have no idea i, I, I can't explain it to you i have no idea his existence is dependent on his essence and i i, I don't know if you figure it out, you let me know. But the Chassam Sofer explains this is what God said to Moshe. God said to Moshe, you ask me what my name is? Here's the answer. Eyye asher eyye. And if the Jewish people ask you what is my name, tell them aleichem. I am the one, I will be, the one who is sending for you. Whoever understands will understand however deeply they'll understand, fine. If they don't understand, that's also fine because it's, you know, it's hard. It's hard. It's, if you understand, you understand. If you don't, you don't. That's okay. But God also says to them, there's a second answer. I'm the God of Avraham, the God of Yitzchak, and the God of Yaakov. God says to them, you know what? You do exactly what your forefathers did. You worship what they worshiped. Avram Yitzchak, and Yaakov. You serve what they serve. You exert yourself spiritually. You imitate what they did. I accepted what they did. Avram Yitzchak, and Yaakov. I accepted that. That's fine. All you need to know. That's all you need to know. You, you, all you need to do is what Avraham did, what Yitzchak did, what Yaakov did. That's enough. Says the Mechilta, one of the important Midrashic sources that we have. What law, what rule in Shulchan Aruch, in the code of Jewish law, comes from this verse? The verse, the, the halakha that I quoted to you before. That a person must know the meaning of the first paragraph of the Amidah and if they do not know what they are saying when they say that first paragraph at the bare minimum, they have not prayed. How does that paragraph begin? Baruch atah Hashem, blessed be you God. Elokei Avraham, the God of Avraham. Elokei Yitzchak, the God of Yitzchak. Elokei Yaakov. Rav Avram Pam explains as follows. The first paragraph of this prayer is the most critical to whom are you speaking? When you say, okay, at a bare minimum it's enough if you at least have a rough idea of the rest of it. But but to whom are you speaking? Before whom are you speaking? If you don't grasp that, then your prayer means nothing. I heard this story from Rabbi Barrow Wine there were students who were gathered around their dying master, and they were so crowded that they formed a line going out of his room and into the street. The nearest student to the master wanted to ask one last question before the master passed away. One last piece of wisdom. Please, master, what are your last words to us? And the old man, with his last breath, said, Life is a river. Wow. Life is a river. And the student repeated it to the one in back of him, and he to the one in back of him, and the the, the wisdom went back all the way to the back of the line, Life is a river, the last words of wisdom of our master. At the back of the line... The last guy to hear this said, what does that mean? Life is a river. He asked the one in front of him, what does it mean? The guy asked the one in front of him, the one in front of him, the one in front of him, until finally the the, the student who is directly next to the master says, master, what does that mean? And so the master says, so it's not a river. If you don't know who you're talking to, if, if you don't know, then what does it mean? So here's the thing. You can spend your whole life trying to understand the nature of God. And you should. That's what we're supposed to do with our lives. But here's the problem. Meanwhile, tomorrow morning, Chakras, the morning service at Adath is at 6.45 a.m. So, so to whom are you speaking? Yes, you're gonna spend your whole life trying to figure out the philosophical depth and and what does it mean and who is God and what is God, but tomorrow morning, 6.45, you gotta stand up and you gotta say, and you gotta say these words. Who are you talking to? So I gotta tell you the truth. At six forty-five in the morning, I don't know. Eh, yeah, sure, eh, yeah, I will be. My existence is dependent. I, I don't understand any of that. At six forty-five in the morning, but here's what I know: at six forty-five in the morning, I know Avram. I know Avram who understood that God's essence. Avram understood God's essence, right? They were close. Avram understood. I don't know what it means, but Avram understood. And he understood enough to know that the greatest way to serve God is by serving others. That's what Avram understood and taught us. I know Yitzchak understood enough of God's essence to know, to realize, that each of us may be called upon to give up our life, to follow God's commands. And I know Yaakov understood enough of God's essence to realize that the greatest goal in life is to raise a family who will all want to serve God. I know them. I want to serve whoever they served. I want to serve however they served. And I want to address in prayer whoever they addressed. So at 6.45 in the morning, I can't figure out philosophical, philosophical depths of God's nature and existence. I simply say, Eloke Avram, You're the God of Avraham? That's all I need to know. You're the God of Yitzchak? That's all I You're the God of Yaakov? That's, that's all I need to know. Now I know who I'm serving. Now I know who I am addressing. And even I should be able to be capable of understanding that at 6.45 in the morning. You know, I've discussed this with you many times. I fear that, I'll speak for myself, I don't think that I'm so good at prayer. At making it meaningful, at making it moving, at making it transformational as it is supposed to be. I mean, and the problem has many parts. There are many causes. Uh, Decorum in shul is not a cause. It's a symptom, in my opinion. I think that the main problem we have, from which all of the other problems with prayer flow, is that we don't clearly know to whom we are speaking. And if we can seriously work on that, and with the sofer it becomes realistic to do so. Because if you say to a person, in order to pray, you have to understand God's essence is not is, is dependent on his existence and not on... <laughs> then there's no hope. But with a sofer, it's realistic. I could do that. I can pray to the God that Avram prayed to. I can serve the God that Yitzchak served. I can worship the God that, that Yaakov worshipped. And then we ought to be able to make significant headway to reclaim prayer for what it's supposed to be, the most spiritually uplifting Jewish activity that there is. And that's why God provides three answers to the question, what is my name? My friends, I want to wish you a wonderful evening and a beautiful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.